doesn't matter how many people hate your brand, as long as enough people love it. You can't be afraid of offending people. You can't try and go down the middle of the road. You have to take a stand on something. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Phil Knight, co-founder and CEO of Nike and a graduate of Stanford GSB. Knight visited Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students sit down to interview leaders from around the world. In this interview, Knight talks about building an iconic brand and what he learned from his heroes and mentors along the way. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Phil, pretty good. Welcome home. It's great to be home, but uh, I couldn't help but uh, be really pleased to see uh, the dean wearing a business suit and Nike shoes showing, you know, but I think we can all be, and we can all be glad that uh, basically I was not the founder of Jockey Underwear. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, We'll try and make that a permanent change in Dean Levin's wardrobe. Now, Phil, we know you don't do too many public speaking events, and a question a lot of people have asked is, what does it take to get Phil Knight up on stage? So I thought maybe we should share the story of what got you here today. (laughs) Now, you probably remember that we first crossed paths a couple of months ago, just over there at McDonald Hall. Mm -hmm. You were entering the building when I very politely interrupted you, introduced myself. We exchanged a couple of pleasantries, and then you went on inside about your day. Now, what you're probably less aware of, Phil, is that I decided to camp outside McDonald Hall for the next 40 minutes, (laughs) watching every possible human exit to the building so that I could find you and, you know, casually bump into you a second time to pitch you this interview. It's creepy, that, I know. Yeah, that, that's how it happened. <laughs> I'll be honest, I was pretty nervous when you did come out that second time. It was fight or flight. I very nearly walked the other way. But there was this voice in my head. It just kept saying, Will, just do it. <laughs> But really, Phil, we are so thrilled and excited to have you back on campus. And I think I speak for every student here when I say how grateful we are for this incredible business school. Well, thank you. But, uh, you know, having stalked me for at least 40 minutes, <laughs> I feel that there should be some payback. Oh, and don't do it. I know that most of you know that uh, Will's mother, Mags, has come all the way from Ireland to be here today. And having come such a long way, I think you should reveal something about yourself that she doesn't know. (laughs) So, I don't know what you're trying to suggest. I was a perfect child. Uh, Well, did you make your bed this morning? (laughs) Uh, I didn't even sleep in my own bed this morning because I gave it to my mom. 
Oh. I gave it to my mom. <laughs> that wasn't what it sounded like. <laughs> All right, now, Phil. <laughs> Phil, we don't want to make you feel old. <laughs> this is payback, by the way. Yeah, this could go back and forth a long time, that's right. <laughs> but it's been almost 60 years yep. since you were here in our shoes, an incoming MBA class of 1962. What kind of person was Phil Knight back at the GSB? How would you have described yourself? Yeah, I will, but I want to tell you first about coming back to campus after being gone for a while. Uh, that uh, you go out 20 years or so, and you haven't been back for a while, and you come back, and it's more about just sharing a moment with family and friends. It's for a moment you step back in history and remember when you had all the world laying out before you and you decided the things that you were gonna find important, and it was really the start of you becoming what you ultimately became. When I come back, for just a moment, I always hear the voice of Frank Schallenberger, Bob Davis, Jim Porterfield, and I know that sounds sort of corny to an educated group, but I promise you that over half the people in this room, when they come back here 20 years from now, will have those same feelings. You know, for me, you know, it was, uh, uh, well, yeah, that uh, I was the guy that thought an extrovert was the person that stared at other people's shoes. (laughs) That uh, the, uh, the, uh, it was a a time for me to kind of grow and uh, and chase what I was really going to become. And so it was really a, a big transitional period for me in my life. And as I say, to this day when I come back, I still get inspired and lifted up. <clears throat> Do you have any favorite memories from your days back at Stanford? Oh, that, uh, no, it was just a turning point in general for me. That, uh, you know, my, if I was honest, I'd say that my undergraduate uh, career was really focused on track. <laughs> And it got to be when I got to be a graduate student that I was really focused on what it was I wanted to be. And this was just the right school at the right time with the right inspirational professors. And it really doesn't get any better than that. So you do graduate the GSB in 1962. Yep. This is a time when Silicon Valley isn't even a phrase yet. Right. And you had what you call this crazy idea. Mm -hmm. What was the crazy idea and where did it come about? Well, I took the entrepreneurship class from uh, Frank Schellenberger, and basically the, the project, he had a term project where you basically either attach yourself to a company in the area or for the purpose of the paper made up a company and, and how it would succeed. And uh, even in those days, a lot of my classmates were writing about electronics, which was certainly beyond me since when I turn on a light bulb, when I turn on an electric switch, the light bulb comes on, it's magic for me. <laughs> But uh, my old track coach was always uh, working with shoes and that uh, felt that, uh, you know, light, lightweight and shoes was something that was neglected by the major manufacturers, Adidas and Puma. And indeed, my senior year, Otis Davis won the uh, Pacific Coast Conference Championship in a pair of homemade Bowerman shoes, which were an ounce light, lighter than the other shoes. So I kind of put those things together and, and said, if you were starting a shoe factory, would you start it in Germany? And I said, it's such a labor-intensive business, it makes more sense to start it in Japan. Japan being the country that uh, took German cameras and, and uh, dominated the camera market. Says, so could they do the same thing in sports shoes? And that was really the thesis of the paper, which ultimately I got caught up in, and here we are. Now, you got an A in that paper, right? I did. Okay. <laughs> but that <laughs> mattered. If, if, if he'd have ridiculed the paper, I don't know where we'd be today. <laughs> 
<laughs> but Phil, this was a time when entrepreneurship post-GSB was not just a less traveled path, it was probably a less celebrated path. What gave you the confidence to push ahead? Well, if I didn't, I was going to have to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a scary thought. No, no it was... <laughs> No, but it was a. Uh, it was when I wrote the paper. It it uh, it just stayed in my head, and at the time, I think the the ratio was that 26 out of 12, 27 new companies failed. So I knew the odds weren't high, but I really began to feel if I could do this, that would uh, would really be meaningful to me and something that I would really have a lot of passion for and about. And uh, so that's where it started, and away we went. Now two years in. Uh-huh. Many of your classmates have gone down more traditional career paths. You're back in Oregon. You're living in your old room Mm. in the family house, and you're selling shoes out of the trunk of your car. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have doubts in those moments, and what was it that kept you going? (laughs) Well, obviously, there were a lot of doubts, um, but uh, that... uh, I enjoyed what I was doing, and I really thought that uh, I was bringing a product uh, to the world that uh, was better than the other product, and uh, and so I believed. and uh, And if you read the book, uh, it wasn't too long before I had a bunch of other people that believed as well, and uh, we just. Uh, through all the ups and downs, and there were plenty of downs that uh, we never stopped believing, and uh, so. Uh, and a lot of people say, why did you stay with it? There were a lot of negative moments and a lot of downturns. And, and I look back on those days, the most fun I ever had in business. It was, uh, it was uh, the ch- every day, every Monday you went to work and you knew it mattered what you did, including whether you're going to meet payroll on Friday. But uh, it was a, an exciting time and uh, that, uh, that uh, Frank Schallenberger had done a wonderful job of preparing us for, you know, being an entrepreneur. Bob Davis, a marketing professor, says, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, he said, every day's a crisis and every Friday's a Jesus crisis. <laughs> and uh, that was, it was kind of the way it was. <laughs> now, you also talk in your book, Shoe Dog, about those early trips to Asia. Mm-hmm. So you're 24 years old, traveling alone mm-hmm. to Japan. It's a culture you don't know, a language you don't speak, to try and broker that first shoe import deal. So this was a time before Stanford's global study trip, Sir G mixes. Where did that ability to embrace hustle and uncertainty come from in you? Well, by the time I got there, I believed. And uh, so that uh, I, I believed that, uh, that, that it was a good idea. I, I believed that uh, if we could uh, get a cooperative Japanese factory, that uh, I could make the idea work. And so, yeah, I overcame, you know, when you're a bit of an introvert, why well, uh, you basically have to, you have to believe. You have to overcome the shyness to, uh, to take certain chances. And uh, I was willing to do that. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs, but uh, ultimately it worked. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, you got to believe. And, that, and that's what I did have, maybe above everything else. <laughs> now, as you said, the team grew and you weren't alone in this endeavor. And I think there's no story of Nike without of course, mentioning Bill Bowerman, mm-hmm. your former track coach at Oregon, later U.S. Olympics track coach, and of course, your co-founder mm-hmm. of what became Nike. You've described yourself as a person who's always needed heroes. Mm-hmm. Why was Bill a hero to you, and what is it you learned from him? 
Well, he was a very unique person that, uh, that he was probably the best track and field coach in the world, for one thing. But uh, he was also uh, had a certain command presence and a certain belief and certain leadership things that, uh, that, that leaders did. You know, he, he said, I'm not, a, I'm not a track coach. He says, I'm a professor of competitive response. And uh, he, uh, he had a, a way of, of having sayings that uh, got your attention and really focused you on attitude. His strategy for running the mile was start out and run the first two laps at a very fast pace, run the third lap as fast as you can, on the fourth lap, triple your speed. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and he said that, uh, you know, the Oregon Trail, he says, uh, the, uh, the, cower- the, the cowards never started and the weak died along the way. That leaves you and me. And that's, uh, once again, him getting at kind of, kind of your attitude. And his, his best one for me was always uh, uh, do right and fear no man. And uh, so he had a big influence on my life, certainly the biggest influence other than my parents. And if you go back through his sayings and, and who he was, he was always working on attitude. This is a man that had seen combat in World War II, you know, fired a gun and been fired at. And uh, he had seen competition at its, its most extreme level. And he thought he could, his job as a professor, professor of competitive response was to get kids ready, for, young men and young women ultimately, uh, to be ready for the, the toughest competition they can face. So, you know, he brought to me, you know, a certain attitude, which uh, you can be an introvert and have attitude. And uh, so that was sort of me. And he had a huge influence on that. And, and he was a hero of mine in those days and to this day. When you first met him, you described it as love and fear at first sight. Right. And then there was a little hate that came after that. But, <laughs> but uh, he, he really kind of believed in hazing. <laughs> that uh, You had to prove that you wanted to be there. And so he would make you go through hoops, which I did. <laughs> Somewhat did. reluctantly. <laughs> now, beyond Bill, of course, you talk with a lot of affection about that core early Nike team. Mm-hmm. And I think you had a name for each other, right? Well, yeah, we did. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. You're playing that game. <laughs> now, that, uh, that, the, the first four or five people in the company, we wound up calling each other butt faces, which uh, <laughs> we don't do that anymore. We're a more, more professional group now. <laughs> You know, our view from the top team, we have a similar name for each other, actually. That's good. That's healthy. (laughs) But what was it about that early team and that culture that made it so successful? Well, I think, first of all, uh, they were a bizarre group, to say the least, each of them in his own way. But uh, they were, and I hope this showed in the book, that they were very able people that really kind of didn't get along with society in general. So it was kind of a perfect fit. And they complemented each other in terms of their abilities. And then lastly, all of them believed. It was, they, they just, when we would hit a down period, nobody thought, this is end. We're just okay, okay, we gotta get together and find our way out of this one. And so it was fun being a foxhole with those guys. And, uh, and we, basically, it's corny, but we loved each other, and we were going to go through this uh, come hell or high water. And uh, it was a very exciting, intense time. And uh, it, uh, as I say, I, I, I love those times. You fought a lot of crises together. Yeah, for sure. In recent years, Phil, we've seen many high-profile, disruptive companies um, being pressured to rein in what we're seeing as aggressive, macho, win-at-all-cost cultures. 
cultures that have brought these companies so much early success in their life. Just last year, Nike faced some similar accusations, and the management team made some pretty decisive changes. When you grow from a startup to a 74,000-person team, how do you preserve the best of that winning culture in a more complex, diverse, global workforce? Yeah, well, you touched on a lot of things there. That uh, I mean, I do think that uh, Nike's culture is a big uh, part of its reason for success. And the culture really was formed in the early days by the, by the four people plus me. Uh, and uh, it still exists to this day. I'd say, a lot of people say, well, Phil had a dominant influence on that, and he didn't. I mean, I've often said many times, uh, Nike is young and irreverent, and I'm neither. Uh, that, uh, but it, it did, uh, it did uh, to use Barman's word, attitude. They came within a certain attitude. And, uh, and it was sort of us. That's who we were. And uh, the culture has been modified some, and which is a good thing. And, uh, but it's still kind of basically there, and I think it's a big part of its strength. That, uh, um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I hope that that culture is, uh, is basically in place, you know, 20 years from now. It, uh, and, and it's one thing it fits with sort of our view uh, then and now about what a brand is. You know, it doesn't matter how many people hate your brand as long as enough people love it. And as long as you have that, you can't be afraid of offending people. You can't try and go down the middle of the road. You have to take a stand on something, which is ultimately, I think, why the Kaepernick ad worked. <clears throat> well, let's, let's jump into those athletes. So I want to take you back to 1978, Phil. You stumble across a shy, timid, retiring Stanford tennis player by the name of John McEnroe. Timid, I wouldn't say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got to see a little bit of John in that video, but for anyone who doesn't know tennis, John is a young, fantastic tennis player who's as well known for breaking rackets as he is breaking serve. He is everything that the tennis establishment at the time, the major majority of the market, was not. So what made him the right ambassador for Nike? Well, the, the, the story, uh, basically, uh, we uh, had a, an agreement with Jimmy, Mac, Jimmy Connors' agent uh, for him to wear Nike shoes. And he did. He wore them um, at Wimbledon. And the agent said, as soon as he gets back from Wimbledon, we'll get it signed. Well, he won Wimbledon. <laughs> and as soon as he got back from Europe, boy, he had summer matches. And then came the U.S. Open, and he said, as soon as we get done with the U.S. Open, we'll get this contract signed. Well, he won the U.S. Open. And then we got down to sign the contract, and he says, I don't remember it this way. <laughs> that was Jimmy Connors' agent, not Jimmy Connors himself. <laughs> but that was the end of our endorsement with Jimmy Connors. <laughs> and so uh, the next year, I think it was, that uh, I went to Wimbledon you know, looking for the next great hope. And there were a bunch of uh, really good American, young Americans, 18 and under. I was looking at the 18 and unders. And they had Brian Godfrey, who was a great player, and Elliot Telstra was a great player. And the, the head of USA Tennis was saying, those are really great endorsements. Stay away from that kid, McEnroe. He's too much of a hothead. He's playing over on court 14. I went right to court 14. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, that week, he was playing uh, the number 16 player in the world, Phil Dent. And he's 18 years old, and he hits his first serve in, and the chalk flies up, and the line judge goes out. 
McEnroe jumps over the net, puts his nose this far from the official, and he says, are you sure of that call? Are you very sure of that call? Wow. And I turned to the guys with us, this kid's not afraid. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of became a fan uh, of uh, his intensity and his competitiveness and his attitude. He did lose control sometimes, but, um, <laughs> that, well, I always remember Frank DeFord's write-up of him in, uh, in uh, Sports Illustrated when he said, the big picture of American he says, why isn't this man smiling? He says, Beethoven didn't smile much either. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> a few years later, actually several years later, you decided to name the executive building at your headquarters in Oregon mm-hmm. after John McEnroe. Mm-hmm. What is it you were trying to say to the team at Nike in doing that? Well, we named all the buildings after uh, our heroes at the time. And, uh, you know, he was one of them. And that just, that was where my office was. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, let's fast forward to 1984. You come across another decent basketball player. His name is, is Michael, Michael Jor- Jordan? Michael Jordan, that's it. Um, now, Nike were actually criticized at the time for overpaying for Jordan's signature. Mm-hmm. But of course, with hindsight, he became more than an athlete. He became a $2.5 billion revenue brand for Nike. Beyond MJ's greatness, what was it that made that brand so successful and so dominant? Yeah, it's, uh, it isn't something you can bottle. It's been, uh, you know, truly one of the uh, unique experiences really in, in all of marketing that uh, obviously uh, he had it all. And, and we pretty much knew that coming in. I mean, he was player of the year. He was handsome. He could jump. And... Uh, that he won the national championship with a winning shot. Uh, he had all of it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, when we signed him, uh, we signed him for more than any rookie had been paid before. We signed him for $250,000 a year. And Fortune magazine ran a little insert uh, and another article says, and there's no greater indication that Nike has lost its way than the fact that they paid Michael Jordan $250,000. <laughs> and, uh, but... Uh, that it's, uh, w- but we can't combine it with uh, uh, our, our, what we thought was a really good shoe, a really distinctive shoe. It was red and black. It wasn't just white or black. And uh, of course, he wore it to, uh, great, in great performances. And then we had the added benefit of David Stern Bandit in the NBA. So we immediately combined it, what became a good ad. It says Band in the NBA, and every kid in the world wanted that. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, and it's, uh, it hasn't been straight uphill. It had a, a one year where our sales actually went down. But overall, that was the, what we got together was really good advertising, which reflected his personality, which was strong. And uh, it's been an unbelievable success that uh, when he quit playing, uh, sales of Jordan brand product were $750 million. And this last fiscal year, they topped $3 billion. And uh, long after he quit playing. So as I said to many people, imagine how much we'd sell if he'd never played. (laughs) (laughs) We can only dream. (laughs) Phil, it's Nike's 55th anniversary next week, I believe. Yeah. The company's at record revenue levels. And just last year, Nike was voted alongside Apple as the favorite brand of millennials. And I think there's a few of us in here who might attest to that. How does a brand stay so relevant to so many people for so long? 
Well, it's uh, it's hard work, uh, but you have to work at it all the time. But I think you know our thing. Obviously, it it starts with the product. the The product is by far our most marketing, uh, our most important marketing tool, and so we're constantly working to improve product. And so, the kind of the recent upturn is because we've had a really good product pipeline. Um, probably the React running shoe is uh, you know, number one on the list, but there have been a lot of others, and uh, that uh, so that's. That's been really important, and then uh, you know, good advertising is is, is critical to it. That uh, you know that uh, the Wyden and Kennedy experience has been uh, is in many ways as dramatic as Nike's, and it's really been kind of alongside each other. When I first met Dan Wyden, uh, I walked into the door of his quote office. He had uh, three people besides himself sitting around a card table, and he said, "Welcome to Wyden and Kennedy." And I said, well, "Dan, I just want you to know one thing: I hate advertising." And he looked at me and he says, well, this will be interesting. And, uh, and it has been. But it, it is interesting that, you know, obviously if I would have said that to Procter & Gamble, I'd have been on, they take your $25 million, take your $25 advertising budget and go on out the door. But uh, they were a small advertising firm. And uh, he grew to understand that what I didn't mean was that I hated advertising. What I meant was I hate traditional advertising. And he found ways to find out who Nike is or who Michael Jordan was and project that to the consumer. And not only did Nike, uh, you know, succeed, Wyden & Kennedy now has offices all over the world, you know, over a thousand employees. It has uh, Coca-Cola as a client, it has Honda as a client, it has a lot of the world's most famous brands as clients. They've been an enormous success. And uh, to this day, they work really hard at, at trying to find out, you know, who it is and who the athlete is and how to, how to project them. <laughs> I know we had uh, Boris Becker, the great tennis player, and we were trying to get him as an endorsement, and Dan Wyden was making the pitch, and he says, we will find out who you are and project that to the world. And Boris says, how in the world can you know who I am when I don't know who I am? <laughs> and, and, and Dan just says, well, we'll find out. Well, we didn't, we didn't make the sale. He didn't, we, didn't get the sale. we didn't sell them. But, um, but that is one of the things they've done. So the advertising and the product are, are two of the, uh, two of the really important things. And then keeping the product fresh and keeping the advertising fresh. And it's an ongoing challenge. And uh, we don't always hit it. You know, a couple of years ago, we took a little dip. And uh, it's a very, very competitive business. And, uh, and every six months is kind of a new life. And everybody has to be aware of that. <clears throat> Phil, this is a school and a speaker series dedicated to leadership, so we want to make sure we, we touch on that topic. Something the MBA One class is challenged with each year is, why would someone follow you? I think there can be a stereotype of what a CEO should be. Sometimes we think of them as a natural extrovert around the valley. Sometimes they can be hero-like characters. You've described yourself as shy, introverted, someone who identifies with the born loser. How were those? <laughs> that's why. That's why we get on that. <laughs> but but how have those traits helped you as you built Nike? Well, I think you know. I mean, obviously. Uh Introverted people have a tendency to listen, which I think uh, good leaders do. But when I was in school, that uh, you know, they talked about two different types of leadership. They talked about autocratic leadership and, and democratic leadership. And you know, it was only uh, 15 years after World War II, and you know, they had uh, two of the great autocratic leaders ever, Douglas MacArthur and George Patton. And uh, they, at the time, looked, were looked on as being very successful. 
that uh, then you have a democratic style leadership, which is uh, the you know, other thing is, is getting people involved and, and talking to people. And um, that, uh, so I think uh, for, it, it's probably almost impossible for uh, uh, an introvert to be an autocratic leader, uh, but an introvert can be a democratic leader. And as the, the idea of democratic leadership progressed, says the, the, uh, they started to talk, use the term collaborative leadership, which is really, in my view, the ultimate and only kind of leadership to this day. That in this day and age, the autocratic leader doesn't work. It, it can work for temporarily, but it won't work long run. And I hope that the people in this, in this auditorium today don't get the idea that hero leadership means being autocratic. And, you know, that, uh, I mean, obviously I think Steve Jobs is looked at as really kind of, in this area, one of, and the whole world really has been one of the great leaders, which I believe he was. But I do believe at the end of his career, he was beginning to modify his you know, natural autocratic style, which, if you will, got him fired his first tour around uh, uh, Apple. And as he got to go through Apple the second time, there was a change in Steve Jobs. And uh, you notice that from the commencement speech he gave to uh, to Stanford University. And, and he hired Tim Cook, and he had a lot of give and take with Tim Cook. And Tim Cook, uh, who I know quite well, is very much a collaborative leader, and, and I believe a great collaborative leader. So I, I think that it, it just don't don't equate hero leadership with autocratic leadership. The only style of leadership that will work in this day and age uh, is, is collaborative leadership. <clears throat> hey, Phil, another thing you may know about this group is that we're a pretty touchy-feely bunch these days. Uh, of course, in your book, you've described business as war without bullets. Yep. So as you look back on those early days in Nike dealing with those crises, were soft skills, tools, an entrepreneur like you could really afford back then? What type of, what type of skills are you talking about? The softer skills, the touchy-feely oh, skills? Oh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that... Um, if you read the book Shoe Dog, obviously, I don't come across as a touchy-feely type. And neither were any of those uh, top five. But there's lots of different ways of communicating. And uh, I, one of the things I don't like about the politically correct movement is that, uh, to me, politically correct has been founded by people that couldn't communicate. And they don't want you to communicate very well either. Because communications really is a kind of an individual thing. Everybody's a little bit different. It's like people have different fingerprints. They have different personalities. They have different emotions. And I think the leader's job is to know who his team is. And there's different ways to communicate with that team. We weren't touchy-feely in the sense that we were always patting each other back and say how we feel. But you could say, how are you doing today, you son of a bitch, and mean the same thing. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, there's just different ways, the different ways to, 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 do, to do that. To do that. <clears throat> I think we need to bring that into the chat around campus these days. <laughs> <laughs> now, Phil, we... We also study a lot here how leaders act in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Nike and yourself have dealt with several. Today, the Nike brand is stronger than ever, but of course, in the late 90s, Nike did for some time become synonymous with sweatshops mm -hmm. and slave wages. As you look back, how do you feel you handled that crisis? What would you do differently, and what are you most proud of? Well, the... Uh, um one of the things that, uh, that we didn't talk about in business school when I was here was the media. 
And uh, so I think probably this group is probably much more aware of the media. But uh, it's, it's always there. It's more prevalent than it's ever been. And they're not always consumed by facts. Uh, that, um, and so when, they, when the first charges came that Nike uh, runs sweatshops, that, um, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's a really uh, seductive argument to say this person only makes $4 a day and Michael Jordan makes, uh, you know, $30 million a year and Phil Knight's worth $2 billion and, uh, and uh, isn't this awful? And, uh, but uh, our initial reaction was that uh, we don't run sweatshops and uh, that uh, you're wrong. And uh, I was the CEO at the time, and that was my strategy, and it was awful. <laughs> it, it didn't work. And so we kind of, uh, after about a year of that, uh, it became clear. And so we took another tack, which says, yeah, you can, you can criticize who wants, but this is what we're going to be, and this is how we're going to be a better company over the next 10 years, and we're going to take these steps each year, and you come look at any of our factories anywhere in the world that you want. And we've kind of been on that path ever since, and that's basically working. And I do think, uh, you know, that uh, we have had lots of good comments that don't get much publicity from the media. And, uh, you know, one of the good ones was uh, a member of the United Nations says Nike's the gold standard for all apparel companies and how they run their, run their factories. And... Uh, it's a constant battle, though, because we're always kind of looking for new factories or changing factories. And uh, we have most of our, our shoe factories and our good apparel factories have been with us for 20 or 25 years. But economics change at different times, so you do change some of them on the periphery. So it's a constant battle to live up to the standards we have. But we have a whole team at Nike that does that all the time and basically is talking to people on the production line all the time. And I do think that uh, our factories are the best in the world right now for conditions. And, and it's, a, it's a basic truth that great shoes are made by great factories. You don't want a, you know, a, a, you know, a bad factory making your, your, the best shoes in the world. Now, Phil, something else we hear a lot from the media, but also occasionally at Stanford, is to find and follow your passion. And you are perhaps the example of someone who built a business dedicated to something they love, which is sports and athletes. There's many of us in the room today who I feel are struggling to maybe tie our true passions to a viable business or career. What would you say to people like us? Well, I think, you know, that one thing that is left out is that you've got to have a niche. You've got to have a reason to succeed. My reason that was that, you know, Japan could make uh, shoes economically. And uh, that... Uh, but uh, then the rest of it, you know, fit right in home base for me. So, and I, and I do think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, it has to be something that you really love because there will be a lot of dark days. And as I say, we never hesitated in those dark days. So I, I was fortunate enough to find what I thought was a niche to go with my passion. And that's, that's what you need to bring those two things together. But when you do, you're very, very fortunate and take advantage of it. <clears throat> All right. Well, look, Phil, this is been brilliant thus far. I know Nike say there is no finish line. We do need to finish in about 15 minutes, though. So we're going to turn it over to some audience Q&A. Today is already mentioned. If you do have a question for Phil, please raise your hand. We'll find you with a mic and then introduce yourself before you ask your question. Hey, 
Hey, uh, I'm Sam Shapiro. I'm a second year MBA student. Uh, thank you very much for coming. You talked about Nike's association with young athletes. It's obviously a very prevalent brand in college athletics. I'm curious to get your opinion on the debate about paying or not paying college athletics and amateurism in college athletics. Well, we have an expert in, in David Shaw right down here. I'll let him talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I think the, the problem with that is is that, that uh, there's a strong movement to, to pay college football players and pay college basketball players. And some of it is, is how much. I mean, obviously, to, to give them somewhat more than what they're getting now is probably uh, the right thing to do. The problem, if you pay them, related to the market value, if you will, or the amount of money that football brings in and, uh, and say, you know, pass that around among football players. You know, what happens to soccer? What happens to track? What happens to baseball? Those all become club sports. You know, nobody answers that question because if you look at uh, some 300 athletic departments across the country, there's probably about 10 of them that are in the black. And so you've got 290 you know, athletic departments that are losing money, and now you're asking them to pay athletes on top of that. Well, what happens to them? So uh, I don't think there's really been a satisfactory answer to that. But uh, you know, obviously, it will be a subject that's in the, in the news for in the next few years, I think. And, but I don't see an easy resolution to the problem. <laughs> Chase Hafner, um, MBA2, thank you so much for your time today. You've gone from being a GSBer just like us to this huge global public figure, and I'm wondering what's it like to be famous and how has becoming famous changed you? <laughs> Is our time not up yet? <laughs> no, 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 no. You see that clock, though. <laughs> Well, I'll just tell you and my personal journey that uh, we went through all those hardships and uh, that uh, we went uh, uh, public in 1980 and uh, that uh, all of a sudden I've gone from, you know, the edge of bankruptcy to having a net worth of $160 million. And... Uh, so I had a period, honestly, for about three weeks where I thought I was really something. <laughs> and, and, no. And uh, I'm married to this woman says, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> she, she, no. I thought about it, I thought about it, and I said, you know, she's right. I don't like myself very much anymore. And I says, so I'll just go back to being the same old schlep I've always been with the same friends and, uh, and live in the same house, and, uh, and I'll be much more comfortable that way. And, you know, now I've got a, I've got a, a second home in, in Southern California, and, you know, obviously I have more assets, but uh, I, I try, and I'm more comfortable believing I'm still the same person I always was. <clears throat> 
How you doing, Mr. Knight? Jason Maiden, 14-year uh, Nike alum for Design for Jordan brand and, and, of course, GSB alum 2011. Pleasure to see you again. Thank you. Uh, one thing that I don't think you get enough credit for, also, Mr. Bowerman, is that before design thinking became a thing that's embedded in new venture creation, at Nike, you taught us to listen to the voice of the athlete and obsess over our craft. Can you talk with the audience about the importance of understanding your audience and how you embedded those creation ethos in the way we operated as a design team and as a company? Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a mantra at Nike. You put the consumer first. And the consumer basically is an athlete, which we now have an asterisk says if you have a body, you're an athlete. So they go together. But uh, that, uh, that, that's what we do. And if we don't listen to the voice of the athlete, we don't have anything. So that's paramount on our, our things that we must check off. And, and we must never lose sight of that. And uh, we're pretty good at it, but we keep working to get better at it. Hi, how are you? My name is Sophie Hamilton. Um, I just wanted to first say thank you so much. The last time I was this close to you in a room, I was nine years old, and I was touring Nike and happened to run into you in the elevator, and you told me three things. I'll never forget them. You basically told me um, to work really hard and go to either U of O or Stanford, and now I'm here. <laughs> at Nike, which I had the great, amazing chance to, and finally, um, to never stop playing. And when I was diagnosed with cancer last summer, it was actually your research that you funded uh, at OHSU that created the cure that saved my life. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, So I think with that, it goes without saying that the what you contributed socially to the world is enormous. Um, and I think many of us are faced with this question of, do we try to make a lot of money and give back? Or do we ultimately you know, spend our lives trying to give back and maybe not have the one resource money that can do so much for the world? Um, but I think right now, we're in a different social climate than maybe when you started out. And I'm wondering what your advice would be to people in our shoes of how to really make the most impact right now. Um, and if we pursue capitalism, how to do it responsibly. And maybe what you see is an big next step in responsible capitalism? Well, um, you know, I mean, I think that uh, even in back in 1962, that uh, there was a lecture or two about giving back, which did register with me. And I, and I hope it registers with you, too. But I wouldn't be at your age in a hurry that, uh, you know, you have your careers, and, and so many of you will have families, that, uh, and just keep it in mind. And uh, it will, it, your, as your careers advance, and they will advance, that uh, it'll, life will economically get easier and you'll have more opportunities. And uh, so I, I know I have a friend that, uh, one of my friends in the writing department has sold a few books, and he's saying, I gotta, I gotta get back right now. And I said, don't be in such a hurry. The guy doesn't have a lot of money. <laughs> That uh, that uh, that uh, it will open up to you, and you'll have certain certain things that create passion for you. And uh, they, uh, yeah, I never would have guessed, you know, 20 years ago that I would be giving money to OHSU cancer. But uh, I met Brian Drucker, and he is one of those people that you meet and say, "I've just had lunch with a genius," and uh, he really is. And so. 
I couldn't give him enough money because curing cancer, to me, is one of the greatest things that the human race could achieve. And uh, so that was never on my plate when I was here or even 20 years after I was here. So I think these things will open up to you. And, and I think the most important thing is that you have it in your head that that's out there. And it's something that it's really something that I as a human being need to do out there. Mm. Hi, Phil. Felipe Mota. I'm an MSX student. Um, Nike's always had an edgy nature to the brand you spoke about, you know, John McEnroe and the black and red colors of the Jordan shoe. I can see your smile from here. And I wanted to know if that was a belief. I, uh, I relate to that very much as well. I wanted to know if that was a belief you had walking into the business. or if. And then when you think about the customer being 15 to 25, it makes sense. Is that an observation and a learning you had as the business went on? Or is that a stance you had as you walked into No, I into think it. we didn't start out thinking along those lines, but as we as we began to, to grow and have a chance to have some advertising, we realized kind of that's who we were. We were the uh, we were the upstart. We were the, uh, the, the, you know, we weren't the establishment. And so being a little bit anti-establishment uh, in those early years was, uh, was what we thought was who we were. We did have to modify a little bit when we became number one in the world because now when you, you are establishment and... Uh, uh, and if you, you become anti-establishment or anti the competitors, you get a little bit of being a bully. So you kind of got to modify that along the growth path. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Dan Mandelman. I'm an MBA one. My question is, what businesses or opportunities do you wish Nike could pursue but can't for whatever reason? Oh, I wish we could have invented the iPhone. <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the, we work we work uh, on you know future plans, you know, very intensely, and you know I'm really quite proud of where the company is and, and where it's going. So I I don't really have regrets. <clears throat> All right, maybe time for one last question. Thank you, Allison Wisniewski, MBA2, um, and Cleveland High School in Portland, Oregon, class of 2010, uh, like you. Um, my question is, you talk a lot in Shoe Dog about being from Oregon and what that meant and the significance, and you've obviously put Nike, kept it there in the Portland area. As a lot of us think about moving from where we've come from, a lot of people flooding to Silicon Valley and staying, how do you think about building a company in a particular location and found it in place? Well, I, I do think this, that uh, I think the place that you headquarter has an impact, uh, that uh, I think there's a certain Oregonian aspect to, to Nike uh, that would have been different if we'd have been a Texas company or a Florida company. But, um, but the flip side is this, that I think if you're going to be successful, you can pretty much be successful any place. I think those two things... Maybe, I think those two things are both true. And uh, so uh, it, being in Oregon affects our personality a little bit. But I think, obviously, if I'd have had the same teammates uh, in another state, I think we'd have been successful. Mm-hmm. Phil, this has been brilliant. We're almost going to let you go. Not quite yet. There's a little tradition we like to do up here on stage. We call it a lightning round. Mm-hmm. So the idea is I'm going to ask you a set of either-or questions. We want you to answer the one answer that comes first in your mind, okay? 
You didn't warn me about this. You didn't tell me you were going to mention me, Mom. I might get back to her. <laughs> All right, look, because it's a new thing, we're going to start easy and then we'll get harder, okay? So, Jordan or LeBron? No. Yeah, that's like asking which of your kids do you like better. Okay, you can tell me backstage, it's fine. Um, Rose Bowl or Super Bowl? Rose Bowl. 340 mile or two hour marathon? Two hour marathon. Nice. Suit or tracksuit? Oh man, (laughs) tracksuit. Just do it or dream crazy? Just do it. Hawaii or Palm Springs? Hawaii. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Beatles. That was easy. Breaking Bad or The Sopranos? Ooh. (laughs) Probably Sopranos, but that's tough. (laughs) We were told it was tough for you. Adidas or Barefoot? (laughs) Barefoot. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Knight. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Will Quinn McCann of the MBA class of 2019. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more of this podcast on our website at gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.